Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. The election to replace George Santos in Congress from Queens and Nassau counties finally saw its only televised debate last night with six days of early voting already done. If you live in the district, you can still vote today through Sunday and on Election Day itself next Tuesday for Democrat Tom Swazi or Republican Mozzie Pillip. The Swazi versus Mozzie race is in its home stretch. We'll talk about the state of that race now and play some excerpts from the debate, which revealed policy differences on issues including abortion rights, banning semi-automatic assault weapons like AR-15s, and the bipartisan Senate border and aid to Israel bill. And we're delighted to have with us for this the moderator of the the debate, um, Rich Baratti, whose day job is to anchor mornings on News 12 Long Island and to host their show Power and Politics, and also Era Lewis, host of Inside City Hall, weeknights at 7 on Spectrum News New York One and a New York Magazine columnist. New York One airs in the five boroughs, News 12 airs in Nassau and Suffolk, so we've got the whole district covered. Errol, always great to have you. Welcome back. And Rich, thanks a lot for joining us. I know you're taking time out from your own show to do this. So thank you and welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me. I'll dive right in here with one of the biggest issues in this race, the asylum seekers who've been coming to New York in large numbers since 2022. In this clip, Republican candidate Pillip says what she wants Congress to do about the southern border, and Democratic candidate Swazi criticizes her for opposing the bipartisan border bill that the Senate took up this week. Pillip speaks first. Building the wall, increase more uh, control, border control numbers, and on top of it, we have to make sure we need to be tight when it comes to asylum seeker. I want to Border, I want to secure the borders because at the end of the day, this is our country. We need to make sure we need to know who's coming here. And if we decided to bring more people, we have to have plan and place uh, in order to help those people. Quick response, and then I want to get to our viewer Yeah, I'd like to. Um, Right now, there's a bipartisan solution that's been negotiated in the United States Senate that builds more wall, that gets more Border Patrol agents, that speeds up the process for looking at asylum seekers. It now has a 10-year backlog, would actually bring it down to a matter of weeks. The Wall Street Journal said it has reforms that Trump never came close to getting. They were so close to getting this deal done, and then President Trump, former President Trump, came in and said, I don't want you to give a victory to Biden. After looking for this, all these problems, terrorists are coming over, fentanyl, all these problems, and I agree there's problems. We finally have a chance to have a solution, and we're not going to do it because President Trump said it will help Biden. As Mitt Romney said, that's appalling. So one addendum to that exchange, about a minute later, Pillip dismisses the idea that Swazi was pursuing there, that there was a meaningful bipartisan bill. 
The Senate bill that came, it didn't even pass. I don't know which bi bipartisan bill are you talking about. It didn't even come to the floor because it did. The reason for that, it doesn't really right, secure well, well, our borders. Tom Swazi and Mazi Pillip from their News 12 debate last night. Listeners, anyone out there right now who watched the debate, give us any of your impressions on that or these campaigns generally, or ask questions of our guests. Uh, Rich Barabi from News 12, who moderated the debate, and Errol Lewis from New York 1, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call or text Rich, first of all, what was it like to moderate this debate? As we heard in those first clips, it was a slugfest of accusations in both directions. It, it certainly was, Brian, and I think we knew that's how it was going to go going into it because of the fact that this is the only debate. It is this close to Election Day, early voting, of course, well underway. And so both candidates not only were seeking to define themselves against the ads that are running against them, but also to define their opponents. And we certainly saw that on this issue, among others, because the migrant crisis really has emerged as the number one issue in this race, which I'm not sure everyone recognized would be the case six weeks ago. But here we are, and they are digging into it. And Swazi tried to get on the offensive because throughout this campaign, he has been painted as someone weak on borders. They've called him Sanctuary Swazi in some of these ads. So he got on the offensive early, but uh, Pillip, rather, was able to stand her ground and reiterate the same talking points that are resonating with so many voters in this district. Well, give me your sense as a Long Island Politics show host. Is this as important an issue to voters in the district as all this makes it seem? Almost all the asylum seekers are in the city and very few in Nassau County, I think, or is that wrong? It's it's 100% right in terms of it being the number one issue. When you walk the district, when you talk to voters, even though, as you said, rightfully, that you know the migrant issue at this point is more of a New York City issue, Long Islanders, especially in this district, are very concerned about it. And this third district is not the third district of Tom Swazi's first go around. There are different lines here. This district now incorporates much more Republican territory in places like Levittown, Bethpage, North Massapequa. And so that is why the Pillip campaign from day one has sought to define Swazi as weak on borders and tying him to President Biden and his policies on this issue. So, Errol, listening to those exchanges and following the race generally, would you say they have actual policy differences on the border or only on how to achieve, uh, you know, policy goals that they have in common? Well, I, I think there are some um, policy differences, although they were muted. Uh, you know, everyone agrees that there has to be some kind of uh, federal action. Uh, the only question is how and when. And to the extent that we have this deadlock in Washington over the question of when, it's a deeply political question, right? I mean, there are uh, really a lot of signs that people are simply trying to game the politics of it uh, so that certain bills are not making it to the floor or are declared non-starters, not because there's anything substantively wrong with the bill, or at least we don't hear that. What we end up really seeing is that people are saying, well, we'll, we'll do this, but we'll do it later when we have a different president Let's not help uh, the current White House. Let's see if we can get a reset on this. And it's a it's a legitimate tactic, although a, a somewhat uh, unprincipled one on some level. Uh, you you know you can delay legislation if you think you, you you can get a better deal later. And I think that's to the extent that you would call it a policy difference. 
I think that's really what you're looking at. Right. Well, Errol, we heard Mozzie Pillip deride the idea of a bipartisan Senate bill since, as it turned out, there were not enough Republican votes in the Senate to actually pass it, even though a group of Republicans worked with a group of Democrats to write the bill. And and this week, and I want to get your comment on that, this as someone who also um, talks about national politics, this week we saw the spectacle of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell before the bill, before he was against it, a blatant flip in a very short time frame of just a matter of days. So was this just fealty to Donald Trump so Trump could have a campaign issue instead of progress actually being made like Swazi was claiming there? Or can it be seen any other way? Well, there, there are a number of people who d- did exactly uh, in the Senate who did exactly what you just described, that it was fealty to Donald Trump, period. Uh, Now, what goes with that when you get to the level of a Mitch McConnell is he wants a majority. He wants to win control of the Senate. He wants his old job back as majority leader. Uh, And that means making sure there are enough Republicans that uh, survive this election uh, to to make him the leader again. And that means kind of listening to what they say. So if they're doing what Trump wants and they would constitute, in theory, the majority that might make him uh, the, the boss of the Senate again, then Mitch McConnell's going to sort of play along. And that's been the story all along. There are those uh, who think that it is a shameful uh, use of politics to put uh, those kind of political considerations above the substance of a really important, really urgent issue, whether it's the border itself or some of the other uh, uh, aid packages that were uh, tied to it, like aid to Ukraine or aid to Israel. Uh, but, you know, we take the politics the way we find them. And uh, I think that's that's exactly what we've got. We've got a really hyper political environment. And that's really came through during the debate as well, where it was almost like a, a European style uh, debate uh, at times where it was just kind of, look, you're a Democrat. So this is what you stand for, uh, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've said, regardless of what you believe. If you have this label, uh, you're, you're going to have to be. Uh, credited or blamed for right. anything that that party does. Very and, unusual. For and, and vice versa, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Swazi over and over again said, look, you know, I mean, especially on abortion and a number of other issues, said, if you're with this Republican majority, this is what you're going to do is provide uh, one more vote and possibly the margin of victory on a lot of key issues. It's um, it's It's really what voters are being asked to choose from. Right. And it's true in this race, as it will be in many uh, in this whole election year for Congress. The old cliche that all politics is local is kind of getting flipped to all politics is national. So let's take abortion rights as the next issue with another clip from the debate. And spoiler alert for those of you who haven't been following the race, they do have a difference on what Congress should do on abortion rights. But Swazi has been running attack ads claiming that Pillip or highlighting that Pillip is being supported by backers of a national abortion ban with no exceptions, even for rape or incest. But it's not Pillip's position uh, that that should be the law of the land. And Pillip accused Swazi of lying about her stance on abortion rights, which she states here. It is a personal decision, a personal choice. Every woman should have that choice i'm not gonna tell her what to do and i made it so clear it's so personal to me so you're pro-choice again 
This is a personal choice. Every woman will well, make that decision. You have been lying, lying to the public. So, Mozzie Pillip there from last night's debate. Rich, she would not use the term pro-choice, as you heard Swazi trying to get her to. In fact, she said she's pro-life, but believes that a woman has a right, as she was describing there. So, to my eye, the Swazi ads and flyers are misleading on this topic. But what I think you brought out last night in the debate was that they do have a significant disagreement still. Swazi would vote to codify Roe versus Wade abortion rights into U.S. law. Pillip would not and supported the Supreme Court uh, decision overturning Roe. Did, did I get that right from the back and forth they had? I think that's right, Brian. I think Pillip tried to walk the line of making it clear to voters in this district where this is a very important issue that she would not infringe upon their uh, pro-choice abilities. However, she would not say she is pro-choice. And her stance is not all that different from what we've heard in the past from some Democrat lawmakers. Even President Biden has said in the past, personally, I'm pro-life as a Catholic. However, that is not my role as a legislator. That's what Pillip is saying here. However, I don't know if it's enough. If this is your number one issue, if you are concerned about abortion rights and you want Roe versus Wade codified into law, I don't know that Mozzie Pillip told you something last night that makes you say, okay, I'm with Pillip. However, on the same point, I don't think she showed in any kind of extremist agenda as has been portrayed in some of the ads against her on this issue. So it's up to the voters now to determine if she walked that line well enough. But Tom Swazi, again, was certainly on the offensive on this topic. And Errol, she was walking a line there, as Rich just put it, an act of needle threading. Another way to look at it that Pillip is doing there supports the Dobbs decision, does not support a national ban, but also does not support codifying Roe and won't call herself pro-choice, which is about policy. It's not about your own personal you know, relationship with, with your own pregnancies. Swazi's position is, we can say, at least more consistent and therefore maybe more predictable once uh, he is in Congress compared to how predictable Pillip might be. Uh, he opposed the Dobbs decision, supports Roe versus Wade as national law if Congress can vote on such a bill. So what? how did you hear that act of needle threading? Well, she she um, got frustrated because it's a difficult line to take that she had to uh, go to what was frankly a mainstream Republican uh, position not that long ago um, and somehow not say that she's pro-choice. So, so you know, she she you know, in the end, um, my wife and I were kicking it around um, the closest I think that she could have come to saying exactly what she meant was to say, um, uh, uh I am pro-choice and I choose life. You know, she she thinks that as the mother of seven kids, um, women can and should make their own decision. And she personally has made a decision uh, to have seven kids. Uh, she does not want to deny uh, women the, the right to make a similar or different choice. And she says on her website, she will not support a national abortion ban. But, you know, it's very hard to sort of carve out that position at this point to say, I, I wanted Roe versus Wade struck down. Uh, I believe that uh, a pro-life position is a principled one, and I happen to hold it. However, I don't want a national ban on abortion. That is, that's just that. That's just a very narrow uh, piece of political turf 
to try and stand on. Uh, and you could hear her visibly, you know, you could see her visibly getting upset as she tried to sort of uh, occupy that increasingly or, or this shrinking little piece of political turf that doesn't have a lot of uh, standing right now in national politics or in the third district. Yeah. So if people are voting on that issue, it's going to come down to who do you trust? Another issue on which Pillip seemed to be threading the needle, or maybe in this case, actually trying to obscure her own position, assault weapons. As you'll hear in this clip, she's been saying she supports a ban on automatic assault weapons, but they're already banned in the United States is semi-automatics like AR-15s that most Republicans are protecting now and the Democrats want to see banned, those rifles that are used so often in mass shootings. We'll hear both candidates in this clip. I have an F rating from the NRA. That's the one F in my life that I'm proud of. And the reality is, is that I've sponsored every piece of major gun legislation, uh, gun safety legislation, in the Congress. I would like to know from Ms. Pillup when she answers this question, will she vote to ban semi-automatic weapons like AR-15s? It's a very simple, straightforward question. Her conservative party that she disagrees with uh, says that, no, we've got to keep it the way it is. So let's see how, what she says. Again, I'm going right. to... Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I, as a mother of seven children, I do worry, again, about mass shooting. Absolutely. And we have to do matter to make sure that guns stays in the hands of people with no mental issues, people not with criminal record, people with um, or terrorists. Okay? We need to do better. We have to make sure we have background check. We have to make sure we have a training. We have to make sure we're following the rules and regulation. And I support waiting uh, period, time period. It's very important for us to follow the regulation. I don't see any reason why average American or individual we should have more powerful weapon than our cops. I don't see that. Therefore, I'm not going to support uh, assault automatic weapon. Okay. Would you would you support a, a federal ban on assault rifles? I said I'm not going to support. I'm not. I'm going to ban automatic assault weapon. Automatic or already automatic, banned? It's semi-automatic. Will you ban semi-automatic AR-15? Anything that's more powerful uh, than any our cops holding. It's a very I'm not going to. I'm not going to support that. So, Rich, for you moderating the debate last night and covering the race generally, it did sound to me like Mozzie Pillip refused to come out there against AR-15s and was using the category of automatic assault weapons to hide her actual position on the current issue, which is the semi-automatics, like AR-15s, or did she leave a misimpression in the debate somehow? I think this is one of those issues in the debate where she would go only so far. She would go right to that line without actually saying what she would do if elected. We saw that on the migrant crisis. She talked generally about the broader talking points when you're talking about sealing the border, adding more agents. We talked about the same thing on abortion. And here we are again on this issue of uh, assault rifles. And she didn't quite get there. But, you know, there's there's another part to this for Mozzie Pillip. Mozzie Pillip is a registered Democrat. And so while, again, she's trying to walk this line in what is a purple swing district, she is, I think, also sensitive to the idea that if Republicans are going to win this race, if she's going to win this race, it's going to be based on GOP turnout. The Republicans have turned out so well over the past two or three years in Nassau County 
you have talked about it. It's been a red wave, whether they're countywide elections, state races here, or now in this congressional race. Even George Santos's race, honestly, was was swept up into that. So for Pillup, she doesn't want to lose that right flank either. So it seems she'll only go so far at this point because she is sensitive to the idea that she is hearing from some conservatives who are saying, why did we nominate a Democrat? We're the Republican Party. I think she's sensitive to it. Errol, I know you come from a law enforcement family. Can you give us any context on the standard that Pillip was trying to set there? No weapons more powerful than the cops have? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the position of law enforcement, including in the New York area, has been that nobody should have automatic weapons, period. Uh, and if you uh, push them a little bit, probably most of them would, would say, both uh, organizationally and personally and professionally, that semi-automatics are a problem as well. Uh, and, you know, and, and and yet that's at odds with where the National Republican Party is. So once again, you have this odd place where um, Mazi is trying to uh, is, is trying to sort of uh, uh, make sure that she holds her endorsements in place, make sure that she's in tune with the National Party, since they also are funding uh, and supporting her campaign in a big, big way. And then so Mazi Pillup has to sort of say, well, you know, yes, I, I don't want to necessarily uh, deal with the semi-automatic issue. So let me just revert to taking the stance that my local supporters have, have taken, which is that uh, semi-automatics are a problem. Now, she couldn't come out and say that because that would put her at odds with the National Party. And uh, Swazi tried to sort of pounce on that. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's very tough to sort of suss out in the heat of a debate. But that, I think, is why she ended up there. Rich, I know you have to go back to work on your own show now on News 12, so thank you very much for taking this time. Just give our listeners, not on Long Island, your quick take on why the voters of Nassau and Suffolk have gone so Republican in the last few years. Both county executives have flipped from Democratic to Republican, and in the congressional delegation, it used to be two and two. Now all four are Republicans. What has happened in these suburbs just outside super blue New York City? Well, it's a great question, Brian. I think on Long Island, we've seen, seen this be a cyclical thing that takes place. You mentioned earlier, all of a sudden now, all politics seem to be national. When Donald Trump was president, Democrats were winning on Long Island. When President Biden was elected, Republicans have been sweeping through offices, whether we're talking about village or town level races. Even in the governor's race, Lee Zeldin did very well on Long Island, and Republicans have seized on frustration with measures in Albany, whether they're tied to Governor Hochul, whether it's tied to crime, inflation, and President Biden. And I really believe that Mozzie Pillip and the Republican Party in this race are once again saying, listen, if we stick to what's worked for us, if we turn out our people, if we don't make any big mistakes, we can win this thing again. It's kind of the Santos playbook from two years ago, obviously very different candidate. I'm sure she'd be the first to point that out. But the playbook has worked in all of these different races, and it looks like they're going to stick to it. We'll see if it works on Tuesday. All right, Rich, but Rabbi does have to go. We'll continue in a minute with Errol Lewis. And your calls, Rich Barabi moderated last night's debate, is co-anchor of Mornings on News 12 and host of their show, Power and Politics. Rich, thanks so much. Thank you. And more with Errol in a minute. Uh 
Brian Lehrer on WNYC. We'll continue now on the Tom Swazi Mazi Pillip race to replace George Santos in Congress from Queens and Nassau County. And if we have time, which I hope we will, we'll touch on some other New York City politics with Era Lewis that he's been writing about in New York Magazine. Errol is host of Inside City Hall, weeknights at 7 on Spectrum News New York One, and a New York Magazine columnist. And listeners, we can take a few phone calls and comments or questions via text message on the Philip Swazi race, Mazi versus Swazi, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. In fact, let me take a phone call right now. Here's Ray in Seaford. You're on WNYC. Hi, Ray. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you, Errol. And uh, I really appreciate the job Rich did yesterday with hosting the debate. You know, my concern, though, was this district got so much attention even before the Santos situation because it was so gerrymandered. And even now, you know, we've got Queens to Massapequa. Many of the people I know, many of my friends in Queens were complaining that they weren't able to get the debate last night. And so I guess my question is, is that, you know, does Errol feel it's fair that, you know, parts of the, the district uh, couldn't even see last night? And, and what does that mean in terms of representation? It seems like these gerrymandered districts are crazy, but CD3 going from Queens to Massapequa is particularly crazy. I just wanted his thoughts on, on, uh, on, on that. Ray, thank oh, you. Yeah, a, a sore point with us, actually. We, um, we asked to moderate a debate. Um, I don't know why they couldn't have done at least two, at least one in the city, because there are some city voters that are in this district. Um, but Mozzie Pillip uh, did not uh, agree. In fact, she wouldn't even come on our show to be interviewed. So, you know, she was running a, a you could call it low key or even stealth candidacy. Uh, and that's, you know, that's her right. You know, you, you can't make people talk if they don't want to talk on camera. Um, I, I think it is a shame for, for the voters. I mean, c- consider this. The, uh, the, the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, which is one of the sites where, you know, migrants have been housed and so forth, it's a voting location. You know, it's not, huh. you know, and, and, it, and they spent more time and passion on that than almost any other issue during the one debate that Mozzie Pillip agreed to. It would have been really, it would have been a great thing if they had really included the New York City portion in particular uh, and had more debates in general so that people could hear more about the different issues. Uh, you know, you can say that, well, maybe we, we don't necessarily need to do that, but I think it would have been better for everybody if we had. As far as the actual boundaries of the district, I'm not so sure about that. I think Eastern Queens has a lot in common uh, with the suburbs, uh, both in voting behavior as well as, you know, look, frankly, the terrain. If you drive, you know, I spent a lot of time out in Great Neck. And, um, you know, uh, unless I'm paying attention, it's not entirely clear when I've gone uh, outside the city limits. Right. And as some listeners have heard me say before, I grew up in the Queens part of that district. Uh, And that is certainly true the way it's trending these days. Uh, We recall that that part of Queens elected a a pretty MAGA Republican to city council, Vicky Palladino. Um, but, uh, But to Ray's point, here's another text from a listener who says, the reason we got George Santos is because we didn't vet him. 
She, Mozzie Pillip, is not transparent and refuses to debate in bigger media or go on this show, which is true. She declined our invitation to come on here one-on-one, just as, I guess, she declined yours, um, Mm -hmm. Errol. And I will say that that's a contrast with other Republican members of the congressional delegation uh, who've been elected recently. George Santos, for example, himself from the same district, did come on the show for a candidate interview. We've had some of the other newly elected Republicans from our region, um, D'Esposito from Long Island, Lolota from Long Island, Lawler uh, from just north of the city. But it seems like, and I think it's worth one more comment on, Errol, that it is a strategy. Um, Rich said earlier that their strategy is to turn out the Republican vote, and I guess they're doing this with lawn signs, they're doing this with social media, they're doing this, I assume, with targeted mailers. Um, But for whatever reason, they don't think it's to their benefit to have her even be seen uh, with wider exposure. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's not it's not a crazy idea. And I think you're you're uh, implying exactly what the logic might be here, which is uh, if you get your base out and everybody else goes to sleep, then you win. Uh, you know, it's not much more complicated than that. And one reason that they've done so well, the Republicans have over the last couple of years, is that the county chairman, Joe Cairo, is a very, very savvy guy. I mean, I've heard nothing but amazing praise for him, not just from Republicans either, but from Democrats who are in awe of his ability to sort of maneuver out there. Uh, this district, by the way, apparently um, uh, Chuck Schumer did not win in this district. Apparently, as well, uh, the, the, uh, the, the the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, did not win uh, in his last re-election campaign, did not carry the district, and he's well, from out there. Yeah, um, although Bi- Biden know, did, though, we should say, right? Biden, Biden won by did. eight points. Biden yeah. won by eight points. But then again, consider Tom Swazi saying specifically while Biden was in town just uh, earlier this week, uh, basically said publicly, I don't want him in the district. Don't come by here. So, you know, the the, the Republicans are going to try and turn out every bit of their la- of their of their base, even if they have a registered Democrat as their candidate. Uh, and by contrast, the Democrats are, I think, a little skittish. They've been bruised over the last couple of years, and they're not going to do what you would normally expect them to do, which is bring in the president, uh, play up the fact that, you know, I I know the president and we can get some goodies for the district, if nothing else, Mm -hmm. uh, and and turn out every Democrat in the district. They're they're actually not doing that. It's really uh, it's really quite striking. Yeah. And in fact, just as Rich earlier was talking about the strategy um, by Pillip to turn out the Republican base, it looks to me like a risk for Swazi is that he's playing it so centrist that I wonder if there are enough swing voters who are actually undecided and weighing these choices to give him a victory when he's not playing to liberal Democratic passions all that much to turn out the Democratic base. Like he talked about, uh, well, we're going to play it a clip in a minute of of him and one of Philip talking about anti-Semitism, which he talked about passionately, but he didn't mention Islamophobia or anti-Palestinian hate when the recent news has things like Palestinian Americans being 
shot in apparent hate crimes in Austin this week and in Burlington last fall, some kind of chemical attack on some pro-Palestinian protesters at Columbia University last month. And, and neither candidate specified that this is a problem both ways, just talked about hate generally and anti-Semitism specifically. But Swazi needs strong Democratic turnout as well as swing voters. And I wonder if you, as someone who watches these politics closely, think he's taking a calculated risk there. He is very much taking a risk. And uh, it, it's kind of a, a look, I, I will defer to Tom Swazi, former mayor of Glen Cove who's the son of a former mayor of Glen Cove, who was the Nassau County executive and who represented part of this district in Congress for years. I will defer to him as far as where the wind is blowing and, you know, whether it makes sense to try and uh, do a base strategy or whether it's better to lay low with the base and try and pull in some independents uh, or bring home uh, some of the Democrats who have started to vote Republican, uh, of whom Mazi Pillow herself is a, a prime example. Uh, putting aside everything else, there will be a lot of finger pointing if Tom Swazi loses this race. I mean, the the National Democrats, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they put in a lot of time and resources. The minority leader, the head of the Democrats in in, in Congress, uh, our own Hakeem Jeffries, went out there to campaign for him. Uh, If all of this kind of blows up in their face or it doesn't work out the way that they're hoping... Um, that that question will be squarely on the table. How do you expect to win as a Democrat if you're acting like you're ashamed to be a Democrat? Yeah. You know, what what do you stand for? What does the party stand for? Why are you in this party if you're not a uh, if you're not willing to to go out and, and carry the flag for the party? It's a perfectly legitimate question. I think this of all of the districts, really almost in the whole country, if you were going to make an exception, this might be it, because, you know, as you we're talking about before, uh, Brian, not just this area, but really all of Long Island. It's a swing area. And when they swing, they all swing together. Mm. Uh, and some of those swings can last a couple of cycles, can last several years. Right now, we're clearly in a red phase. And there's a question of whether or not Swazi, with all of his gifts and all of his history, uh, can be the exception to the rule. Well, here's maybe a very relevant caller to this point. Diane, who was out canvassing for Swazi, I believe, in the district last Saturday. Diane, do I have that right? Hello. That 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 is correct. That's a perfect introduction, and thank you for taking my call. This is that was one of the swingiest canvases I've ever been on. I think if I had gone back and talked to the same person five minutes later. They might have given me a different answer in terms of their motivations and their inclinations. The next few days for any of these candidates is going to be making the case and getting out the vote. People want to engage. They, they want to learn. They want to be active. But the candidate needs to deliver the bona fides and motivate people to get out to the polls. And as a reminder, there's early voting today and Saturday and Sunday. The polls are closed on Monday and then regular election day on Tuesday. Right. Good to remind people again. Diane, was there any particular issue that jumped out at you uh, that had people so on the fence? Well, you know, um, the area that I canvassed um, had very many people who were first generation from other parts of the globe. Um, They were naturalized voters, 
and they felt very passionately about about the immigration issue. Um, they had some very strong thoughts about that, and I think it's very interesting in the last few days what's happened around that issue in Congress, and I think there are very many and relevant talking points about what's happened in Congress that the candidates can can really have authentic dialogue with their potential constituents. Um, it's an important issue. Certainly, it's a political one, but it's something I think both candidates should address if they are truly running to represent, you know, their potential constituents Diane, in the last few days. Thank you. Yep. Thank, thank you very much for chiming in. Interesting uh, in the way that Diane helped us report that story with her experience canvassing last weekend. I'll touch one more issue from the debate with clips. In this case, it was one that they agree on, that anti-Semitism is a problem in the district and in the country right now. First, here's Tom Swazi. Anti-Semitism is very real. Uh, the fear people are feeling is very real. Uh, and I empathize with young people, especially, that are being subjected to this hateful rhetoric uh, as we speak. Uh, there's a problem in our country with division and with hate. And when everything is just an attack and attack and attack and no actual solutions, it raises the temperature and makes things worse for people. When I was in Congress, I supported a piece of legislation, actually built it with the, co uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus, 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans, to build support for it throughout the country for the Never Again Education Act, to teach people about the realities of the Holocaust. And here's Mozzie Pillip. As a black woman, as a Jew, as a mother, I hear you. I have been fighting anti-Semitism in the last three years. Because my son, I have seven children, my son wanted, uh, for his bar mitzvah, he wanted a Star of David necklace. When he wanted that, I wanted to give it to him as a mother, but I was very concerned. Should I give him or not? And since October 7, we are seeing anti-Semitism out of control. I feel the colleges. I was in the rally in front of Columbia holding students' hands and demanding that Columbia will do better to protect the Jewish student. So, Errol, they agreed on the issue, as we can hear. And I think this gets to one of the reasons that the Republican County Party leaders chose Pillip out of many Republicans who wanted to be the nominee for this seat. In the post-October 7th world, in a district with a large Jewish population, here they have a newcomer for most voters who is an Ethiopian immigrant to Israel and served in the armed forces there before moving as a legal immigrant to New York. That checks a very unusual and relevant combination of boxes uh, demographically, in addition to her views on the issues, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I mean, look, what I, I uh, take all of those demographic unique qualities and put it together as an outsider. Uh, you know, even frankly, as an Ethiopian uh, going to uh, Israel, there's a whole issue with Ethiopian Jews that's been going on for decades. Uh, they're not entirely accepted there. So there's a sort of an outsider status there. Uh, she then comes to this country and immigrants are often not exactly welcome, even in New York City or, or, or the surrounding suburbs. And so you've got that. 
uh, you've got uh, somebody who, as a Black American now, is is in a, another sort of minority category, and, and women um, have gotten the short end of the stick in politics and elsewhere for a long, long time. So this is somebody who, when she speaks, the passion comes right through, the experience is real, uh, and, you know, it doesn't hurt in a district that has a lot of Jewish voters uh, that she was not just Israeli, not just Jewish, but a, an IDF paratrooper. You know, so who um, she's 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 got, you know, on paper, a lot of the qualities that you want and a lot of that did come through in how she spoke, including that clip that you just played. Right. And the district is demographically interesting. Very few black or Latino residents, but about 18 percent Asian-American, as well as around 70 percent white and the Asian-American uh, population in the district includes many Chinese and Korean-American families in the Queens part of the district and many South Asians in the Nassau part. I don't know how many of those Indian-Americans or other South Asians are Muslim, um, but there are various Asian-American groups who are apparently included in the real swing voter demographics uh, in New York politics right now. Hey, Earl, I want to give you a quick shot at uh, a comment on your latest article in New York Magazine. Headline, Andrew Cuomo wants the kind of redemption that comes from winning an election. What? <laughs> well, I wanted to look, I wanted to say in the column what I um, have said uh, to uh, a lot of people, including Andrew Cuomo himself privately, which is that, you know, it's an odd situation, but he has no forum in which to argue the case that he wants to make. He wants to make the case and is trying in court, which is not the, the greatest forum, to say that all of the women uh, who accused him of, of sexual misconduct um, are either uh, obviously lying or, 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 or are not credible. He's also trying to make the case that the people who presented these cases, and by that he means primarily the Attorney General, Letitia James, as well as some of her allies in the State Assembly, uh, have all been unfair to him as well. Uh, he additionally wants to make the case that the press has been unfair to him. And, you know, look, if you don't have any place else to go, as far as I can tell, the place where he can make the case that he has been wronged that he still has something to offer and that he should be returned to public life is, well, look, go out there and have somebody elect you. Uh, you know, I mean, that 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 can silence all of the critics or at least hold them at bay uh, long enough to, to get you back so, in the game if that's what you're determined to do. So there's been a little buzz that he might primary Eric Adams for mayor next year. Do you think that's a real possibility? Uh, you know, it depends. It depends. If I, I think, look, I would say this as a blanket statement that nobody would quarrel with, which is that if Andrew Cuomo sees daylight, he will run toward it. If he thinks there is a reasonable chance of him becoming mayor of New York, running for governor, I would even throw in Congress, he will take that shot. Uh, you know, there's polling that showed that he would be a, a, a contender if Eric Adams were to go away. Uh, that's that's enough to get anybody's appetite whetted. Uh, he's also got millions of dollars that can be deployed. He left office with a campaign fund that wasn't wasn't um, uh, super full for a statewide race, but was pretty formidable for a citywide race. And so he's you know he's he's in a position to do it if if all of the stars lined up. Um, and like any good politician, 
he's going to keep his eyes on the stars and see if they're lining up for him. Harry Lewis hosts Inside City Hall weeknights at 7 on Spectrum News New York 1, and he is a New York Magazine columnist. Errol, thanks as always. Thank you, Brian. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. February is Black History Month, and the official theme of Black History Month in the United States this year is African Americans and the Arts. And to that end, we are thrilled to welcome Kwame Alexander today in his role as editor of a new book called This is the Honey, an Anthology of Contemporary Black Poets. And we're going to ask him to read a few selections. And you may know the massively creative Kwame Alexander as a poet or an educator or a publisher or an Emmy-winning TV producer or the author of, author of around 40 books, including for children and adults, some of them bestsellers. You may know his book released last year called Why Fathers Cry at Night, a memoir in love poems, letters, recipes, and remembrances. His best-known book and TV series might be the middle school-targeted The Crossover. You know that book? It came out in 2014. It's been awarded the American Library Association's Newbery Medal for Literature for Children and a Coretta Scott King Award, which is also for youth-oriented writing. And some of you parents out there probably know the TV series version of The Crossover, which ran just last year on Disney+. Plus and won the 2023 Emmy just recently for Outstanding Young Teen Series and was produced by Kwame Alexander with LeBron James Production Company. And yes, it's partly about kids involved with basketball. And yes, the book is written in verse, and so an appropriate person to turn to to edit uh, the book called This is the Honey, an Anthology of Contemporary Black Poets. Kwame, it's an honor. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you for having me. Can we talk about you a little first before we talk about the book and hopefully uh, hear you read a few selections? Among the things in your memoir, you write about your complicated relationship with your own father and your relationship as a father with your daughters. Why did you title the book Why Fathers Cry at Night? Why center the idea of crying? My mother passed away in 2017. And I realized, you know, three years later, and I still hadn't really cried that I had, you know, I had been nurtured and raised in an environment where it was not okay or cool um, or appropriate for a man to cry. And I remember traveling to Kenya and I was talking to some of the men in one of the villages, the village called Wamunyu. And I asked, I said, do you all, you know, as men, do you cry? And he was like, no, we don't. We were taught from a very early age that that was wrong. And if we cry, we were, we were spanked. Like it was not a good thing. And so I just began to wonder, why have I not really grieved about my mother, who was the most important person in my life? Mm. And that sent me down this sort of path, this journey of, of wanting to get to that point where I cried, not just at night or not, you know, in the darkness, but I was upfront and open and authentic and vulnerable as a man, as a human being, and showed my true colors under the sun, as it were, in the daylight. 
And that story you just told with those men from Kenya, um, if we accept that it's probably a very different culture from a lot of what we have in the United States, you know, it almost raises a question of whether universally uh, or close to it, male culture has developed as that kind of um, stoic, we don't cry. I think the answer is in the question. Absolutely. Um, I asked Stephanie, who um, I was married to for 24 years, who is my best friend, who I love dearly. I asked her, I said, do you ever talk to my mom? Because, you know, Brian, when 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 our the, our loved ones pass away, we often hear that we see them or they come and come to us in our dreams or if you're really connected, you have these conversations with these with these folks who were important to you. And I asked her, I said, Steph, do you ever talk to my mom? And mm. she said, I talk to her all the time. Mm. I talked I talked to her. I talked to Aunt Cora. I talked to Aunt Leela May. And she started naming all these women in the family who have passed on. And I said, well, what about Uncle Philip? What about Uncle Richard? And she said, I didn't talk to them when they were alive. <laughs> and so yeah. she, wow. she said, maybe, maybe they would come and pat my head. But Brian, I made a conscious decision that I don't want to be that uncle, that father, that man who is not remembered, yeah. who is not talked to. And so writing the memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, was a door, was me opening a door to that understanding. But of course, you know, Brian, the real work of actually trying to become this better man you know that 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 started once the the book was published that was just the mm, that was wow. just the beginning wow yeah and things are changing the last few generations i think but too slowly you told terry gross on fresh air last year that your father loves through words loves through books how does that get expressed how does someone express love to members of their family to their children through books so Thank you for mentioning the Terry Gross interview, which was one of the hardest and most rewarding interviews I've ever done. Um, and, and I just I thought that my father was going to really be in his feelings after listening to it. Um, um, I remember when I when I when I sent him the memoir, because I did not send it to anyone in advance. I, I felt like I would, it's better to ask for, you know, forgiveness than permission. <laughs> yeah, it was, it proved not to be the best decision because <laughs> I got a lot of blowback. So anybody out there writing a memoir, you might want to consider sending it to the folks in it. Um, mm. But when I sent it to my father, his, his response was, you know, I read your little memoir and and so, he, you know, he said, you, you definitely told your truth. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is that my father making me read the dictionary, making me read his dissertations from Columbia University, my father um, making me work for his publishing company, making me stand behind a table and sell books at the London International Book Fair. Hmm. My father always with a book or always with a pen writing. My father, the Baptist minister who wrote and delivered the most powerful sermons. Like I told Terry and like I'll say to you, Brian, there's no way I would be here right now with 40 books 
there's no way I would ha- be living this writerly life were it not for for him being a hundred percent all the time focused and centered around words and literature and books. And as much as I want to complain about you know that as a child that that sort of experience, I mean, I am the uh, I am the result of that. And I love my life. I love my job. And I, you know, I owe a lot. I owe a lot to my parents. Yeah. And you talk, I'll steal one more moment from the Terry Gross interview, um, which is to say you talked about being forced to read books as an 11 year old that no child of that age should be forced to read like your father's dissertation from the Columbia University Teachers College. And so it struck me that your acclaimed book, The Crossover, was written for exactly that age, like 11 years old. Do you think that either consciously or subconsciously you were trying to bring your childhood experience full circle by writing books that kids in middle school would actually enjoy? Oh, yeah. And I'll I'll edit myself and, and say that it's not that no 11-year-old should have to read uh, a, a doctoral dissertation. It, it's that no 11-year-old wants to read it. <laughs> Who really <laughs> wants to do that as a kid? You want to play video games. You want to play with your friends. Um, my parents like to say that I was an experiment that they set out to create a critical thinking, writerly, activist-minded, entrepreneurial black man who Success. could walk, who, who, right. And, and so, and so when I won the Newbery Medal, when I won the Emmy Award and I called my dad, his response was, yeah, we did it. And so, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they did. So, so yeah, the crossover is a nod to, to my 11 year old self who wanted to have been able to read a book like that. Like that was my goal. What is the book I'm gonna write that me and my friends would have wanted to have read, would have wanted our teachers to assign. Um, And of course we know that the crossover deals a lot with the relationship between father and son. And so that also plays a role in it as well. And we haven't even gotten yet to the book that you're actually here to promote. But (laughs) listeners, any Kwame Alexander readers out there, any? Why Fathers Cry at Night readers, any the crossover readers, any the crossover watchers uh, on Disney Plus last year, 212-433-WNYC or any other reaction you have to our conversation, 212-433-9692, call or text. Um, And the crossover, as I said in the intro, was written in verse. If people tend to think of poetry as maybe relatively shorter works usually compared to novels. That's a lot of poetry to have to write. Oh, yeah. You know, and the goal is you're telling a story. So that's first and foremost. You are telling a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, And in, in so many ways, Brian, you know, if you were to look at it quantitatively, most novels are going to be 40 or 50,000 words. Well, a novel using poems, a novel in verse is going to be half of that at most. And so you, you, you're you not using as many words on the page, right. but the words that you use on the page have to be able to move the story along, have to be able to paint a picture, 
have to be able to give the reader enough that they are excited, entertained, engaged. Like Langston Hughes said, and this is the biggest part of and why it takes so long to write a novel in verse and why it takes so much of you is because it, you know, poetry is, is the distillation of the human heart. It's so much stuff in so few words. And turning the crossover into a TV series for Disney Plus, is it as fun as I think it might be to see characters who you've created in print come to life with real life actors on a screen? Oh, absolutely. And you know, when, when we sold the crossover, I was told that as an author, you know, you sell the book and then you get out the way. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, you didn't do you that. Know, I, I told you the kind of person I, I was raised to be. And so I, I told him, I said, look, I need to be in the writer's room. I need to, sh- I need to, it's called, the, the, the head writer is called showrunner, as I'm sure you know. And, and I had never done that. And I told him, if you want to make this into a TV series, I need to be the showrunner. And, and I got a lot of pushback. And eventually they decided to, to pair me up with an established showrunner uh-huh. who ended up being pretty miraculous and magnificent named Damani Johnson. So I was in the room. I was on the set. I was helping to make these decisions. I got to see a lot of this, you know, transformation, this adaptation, you know, happen in real time. And it was marvelous. There was this one moment, Brian, maybe episode five, where uh, Felicia Rashad, who we all know, who played Claire Huxtable, um, she she was playing the she plays the grandmother in our TV series, and mm. and she had a she had a question about like the way a line was supposed to be delivered, which was very poetic. Which like most of the lines in the book and in the show are quite poetic and lyrical, and and so the director called me over it, and so I am directing Felicia Rashad, and it's. It's so like surreal that I am giving this legend, this icon, this brilliant actor um, notes on how to deliver a line that I wrote in 2008 at Panera Bread <laughs> in Herndon, Virginia on Eldon Street. Like that's that's I'm, I'm just a poet, man. And, and, and I've been real blessed. Now we know where poetry is written, sitting alone, <laughs> I presume, in a Panera Bread. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You want to talk to a fan? Here's Priya in Milburn in Jersey. You're on WNYC with Kwame Alexander. Hi, Priya. Hi there. Can you hear me? Can hear you fine. Great. So, um, yes, I'm, I first saw Kwame Alexander speak um, at Words and Bookstore, at Words Bookstore in Maplewood. So just shout out to my local independent bookstore. And he was just absolutely amazing. I bought his book, I think it's called The Playbook, for my son who was, you know, um, middle schooler at the time, and we had just moved to New Jersey. We're not from New Jersey. We moved to New Jersey from um, from another country, and, you know, he was just kind of going through it, and I just, like, I just found his voice, Mr. Alexander's voice, to just be so incredibly powerful, and every time I think about... Um, the poem that he recited with somebody else on NPR, I think it was around the time of the 2016 election. I just get tears in my eyes. So thank you for doing what you do. And um, yeah, so big, huge fan, obviously. (laughs) Uh, 
that means a lot. And I, I really appreciate you for ser- sharing that, um, Priya. I think that's the beauty, Brian, of poetry. That's one of the really powerful things is that it has the ability, when it's done right, to connect with us. Even though we may not have experienced the thing that's being talked about or, you know, we don't know the poet or know their experiences, we can connect with it. We can, and it, and it brings us closer together as a community. We come together in unity. Um, my, like I said, my mom passed away and, it, you know, one of the things that I had to end up turning to was writing about it. And that allowed me to get closer to grief. And so there's this piece in This Is The Honey called I Wish My Love Was Here. And everybody has some sort of connection to loss and longing. And, and this is a piece by Curtis Lampkin. I wish my love was here. She would know what to do with such a day. She would wipe the sun and sea from her shoulders and rub them deep into my palms. And when the salt and sand was gone, she would kiss my hands and say, there, I wish she was here. I know she is in me, even amid the crashing and foaming around me, her tenderest sigh. I am not alone, but I miss her. I miss her so much and I don't know what to do. She would know my love if she was here. Pretty straightforward poem about grief, seems to me. I haven't heard that before. And not knowing what to do with that zinger at the end, she would know. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the beauty, uh, you know, the thing is the way you feel before you read a poem or the way you feel after you read a poem should be a little bit different than the way you felt when you started it. It should take us somewhere. Poems, I believe, are little, like, miniature lives. They're journeys of life, of these, these capsules, these, 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 these highlights of our lives. And I, and I think they got to take us somewhere. And that one certainly did for me. And, and you did my work for me. You seamlessly segued from your other works <laughs> that we were talking about to the new book that you're officially on for, and that is for listeners just joining us as the editor of This is the Honey, an anthology of contemporary black poets. And I'll say that famous names here include Rita Dove, Alice Walker, Nikki Giovanni, Clint Smith, Amanda Gorman, who's just 25. Remember her? She became a national sensation for the work she read at President Biden's inauguration, Amanda Gorman. So with so many poets to choose from in the world, Kwame, how did you choose works for this anthology as editor? So it started off with me wanting to, A, have really renowned poets who had inspired me in my writerly life. B, have some of my peers, people I've known for 20 or 30 years, um, like Tony Medina, um, like Jessica Caremore, like Ruth Foreman. And see, you know, when I was starting out writing in, you know, my first poems, I thought were really good. Um, but a lot of journals and publishers didn't. And they probably weren't that good. But nobody wanted to publish me, so I published myself. So this sort of third layer of the book, This is the Honey, was me wanting to give an opportunity to younger writers to emerging writers who don't have as much access, 
you know, mm-hmm. that is some of the mm-hmm. more established have. So it was sort of a bringing together of all three of those groups. Mm-hmm. And and then once I decided that, that ended up being about 60 or 70 poems. And then from there, it was, you know, I'd get emails, Kwame, um, my friend writes also, and you should look at her stuff. Or I'd get poem a day from the National Poetry Foundation. I'd, I'd get their emails and discover a gem. Or I think about someone you know, from my past who, oh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. How did I not have a poem by him? And so all of those things sort of converged and we ended up, you know, with 154 poems. Want to pick any one of those 154 poems to read? Well, you mentioned Alice Walker, um, who, um, you know, probably my two favorite books that I've ever read in terms of fiction were Erasure by Percival Everett and The Temple of My Familiar by Alice Walker. So I knew, you know, a lot of people don't know Alice Walker is a poet. They know her from The the Color Purple, but I've always loved her poems as well. And so I thought, I gotta have Alice Walker in this book. Like, that'll be a major, major um, coup. And so she wrote, I could eat collard greens indefinitely. Every morning I drink this as I place a few flat homegrown leaves in my pan. Let me start over on that. See, I'm getting all flustered, Brian, because I'm <laughs> reading a poem by Alice Walker in my book, <laughs> This is the Honey. So um, it's, it's, so let me just start over. You get a, you get a second take. You're in that place. <laughs> I could eat collard greens indefinitely. Every morning I think this as I place a few flat homegrown leaves in my pan. Pan, not pot, for we have graduated to speed, to rapt anticipation, to a stirring sensuousness that satisfies my sense of passion. And I want them inside me like the lover of my body that they are, their green goodness beckoning me to rise. Health food poetry, (laughs) as well as culturally (laughs) yummy poetry. Right. That's right. And love poems. There you go. And devotions. That's it. One more fan. Spenta in Japan in Rockland County. You're on WNYC. Hi, Spenta. Hi, Brian. Uh, Long time, second time. So love both your show and I love Kwame Alexander. I think uh, Kwame, you may not remember this because it was a very long time ago, but you autographed, uh, personalized for my daughter, uh, the crossover. I got. I contacted you, and as a Christmas gift, and that was before it went, you know, bestseller and all that other stuff. And I've given that book to others who either don't like to read, but or and or love basketball as a way to get more adolescents to read. I absolutely love your work. I think what you're doing with uh, free verse and poetry is phenomenal, both for adults and especially for young children. I've read almost everything you've written. I haven't read your new one. Um, I started the trilogy. I've, I've read The Door of No Return, which was amazing. And so I just want to say I'm a huge fan. You are somebody who also, um, I know you promote books all the time and are very um, supportive of library libraries and librarians. And you're uh, very good friends with somebody I know from the Nyack Library, who's a children's librarian, and she and I both adore you, Morgan Strand. So just wanted to give a shout-out to uh, everything you do and how much I admire your work. It's just incredible. 
Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Spenta. Um, can we end with one more selection from the anthology? Sure, sure. Um, that's, I mean, the goal of the anthology was to really bring a lot of joy to people when they read this. You know, I wanted them to feel good. I wanted them to leave feeling some hope um, amidst sort of these troubled times that we find ourselves in. And I often think, you know, what better way to bring joy, to bring hope than through love? Like we all love or we all want to be loved or we were all in love last week and we not now. Like it's just love is the thing. And so, you know, the book is divided into six sections. The first, first section is joy, the language of joy. And of course, the sec second section is love. And this is the piece right here that I think it made me feel good um, to be able to read it and to be able to publish it. And, and hopefully it will, it will offer something to you all. It's by Willie Perdomo. It's called, That's My Heart Right There. We used to say, that's my heart right there. As if to say, don't mess with her right there. As if don't even play, that's a part of me right there. In other words, okay, okay, that's the start of me right there. As if come that day, that's the end of me right there. As if push come to shove, I would fend for her right there. As if come what may, I would lie for her right there. As if come love to pay, I would die for her right there. Kwame Alexander is the editor now of This is the Honey, an anthology of contemporary black poets. Thank you so much. This was special. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Keep up the amazing work and in inspiring us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. More to come. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Here's a clip of a comedian on TV in 1961. See if you recognize him. And we have a lot of racial prejudice up north, but we're so clever with it. Take my hometown, Chicago. I mean, you can't see it just, just going in there. When the Negroes in Chicago move into one large area and it looked like we might control the votes, they don't say anything to us. They have a slum clearance. <laughs> You do the same thing on the West Coast, but you call it freeways. <laughs> so that was the trailblazing Dick Gregory from his first TV appearance way back in 1961 on ABC's Walk in My Shoes. And to end the show today and for Black History Month, we're going to be talking about the history of black comedy as a tool for activism. Dick Gregory's career and continuing influence will guide us as we do this. The theme of Black History Month in the U.S. this year is African Americans and the arts, and comedy is definitely an art. And from pioneers like Dick Gregory and Moms Mabley, who tackled racial inequality during the Civil Rights Movement, 
to contemporary trailblazers who continue to push boundaries and spark crucial dialogues on race in the 21st century, comedy has served as a platform for black performers to share their experiences, perspectives, and frustrations. And for more now, I'm joined by Mark Anthony Neal, who is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. Professor Neal, welcome to WNYC. So glad you could join us. Thank you for the invitation, Brian. And it was a video that you made about Dick Gregory that uh, put us on to focusing on him for this segment today. So thank you for that. And we're going to hear some more clips. But where do you begin to trace the history of what we've come to know as black or African-American comedy in the mass media era? I mean, definitely Dick Gregory is the breakthrough artist. Obviously, there had been back black comedians prior to that point in time. A lot of them didn't cross over to the mainstream, obviously. Uh, as long as there have been black folks in this country dealing with the issues of racism and oppression and, and everything that goes with that, there have been black folks trying to make humor of that, whether or not they were stand-up comedians or musicians or comedic actors, you know, if, if in, in that context. But Dick Gregory is really the one who's a breakthrough who comes through in the early 1960s is the first black comedian really, you know, on, on a, who's a regular feature on night, late night television. Um, he's the first black performer on what becomes Johnny Carson's late night show. And, and that moment was really critical because as he told Johnny Carson, as they were inviting him onto the show, um, you know, his whole thing was, I'm not just going to go there and do stand up. I, I want to sit down and talk with you um, about, you know, what's happening in the world. And, and that was really a shift and a breakthrough. You know, we did, weren't just entertainers at that point in time. Right. It was something more than that. And his willingness to always center race. Right. Finding the funny in both race and racism is one of the things that attracted him to many different folks. Um, and he was also really solely committed to the civil rights movement at that point in time. And, and for you know a long period of time, really gave up um, the kind of financial success he could have had as just a stand-up comedian, mm. you know, to be on the front lines of the civil rights and later human rights movements. And listeners, we can take a few phone calls, as we often do in this final 15 minutes or so of the show on all kinds of things in your life. And today we're inviting you to shout out a favorite comedian who's made you laugh and also advance the cause of racial justice. Who has one? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. If you have a favorite comedian who's made you laugh while advancing the cause of racial justice in the context of their comedy, 212 433 WNYC 212-433-9692. Call or text with Mark Anthony Neal from Duke. Uh, let's hear another clip. Here's Gregory in 1962 at an event in San Francisco. See, 20 years ago, the light-complected Negro had it made. Now it's the dark-complected Negro simply because of the government contracts. In order for big business to get government contracts, they have to hire Negro and white on an equal basis. And these cats go out and get the blackest cat they can find. <laughs> so when that government inspector walk in there, he can see him seven blocks away. <laughs> oh, you got one. Right. You want to say anything about that particular clip or the one we started with? I think the last clip is, is really funny and important because it, it speaks to the issue of colorism. 
um, within the Black community without getting too deeply as he does it in this context, but really the fact that there is a perception uh, about the authenticity of, of Black identity as it's connected to skin color. Um, and so he's, at, on the one hand, talking about what that might look like in terms of public policy, who gets jobs and who don't get jobs and contracts and what have you, right? But also, it's also a sly nod to what is going to become this moment of Black pride, where the idea of darker skin African-Americans and Afros and all those things begin to take shape and become much more of an aspect of what we think of as the Black experience. Now, Gregory was by no means the first black performer of what we know as stand-up comedy. Some 40 years before Gregory's first TV appearance in 1961, Moms Mabley began her career on stage, and she would go on to become a legend on the so-called Chitlin Circuit. Um, she did wind up, I think, on TV toward you know the end of her career. But yeah. So let's hear a clip. Um, as we confirm that, this is Moms Mabley performing live on the Merv Griffin Show in 1969. And I married another old man. <laughs> older than other one. Old. Older than his birthday. <laughs> and ugly... He was so ugly, honest to goodness, he hurt my feelings. <laughs> I told him the other night, I said, let's sit down and have a talk. Somebody's got to die because I can't put up the bill. <laughs> So, Professor Neal, do you want to say anything about Moms Mabley and maybe even generally the role of black women going back to the early days of, of stand-up comedy? Yeah, it, it was hard for me to listen to both her and also the, the Gregory clips and not sit here and laugh to myself hearing them again uh, in this context. Uh, you know, what's important about Moms Mabley, obviously because she's a black woman, so she brings a gender perspective to what's happening to black Americans at the time. But, you know, unlike Dick Gregory, who did not have to toil on the Chitlin circuit, right? All those kind of networks of black clubs and nightclubs and auditoriums, places somewhat well-known like the Apollo. Um, she was a veteran of the Chitlin circuit. So it was really important when someone like her and then also Red Fox was a contemporary, you know, breakthrough to the mainstream, right? Because they had been kind of honing their craft for decades, you know, underground out in the shadows, right? Of, of white America and white comedians. So this was really a great opportunity, you know, for her to show up as she had had been showing up for so many decades at that point in time, right? And again, the, the whole point of her humor was to bring into context, yes, race is important, but what's the specificity of being a Black woman in this kind of moment? And I always want to give a shout out to Whoopi Goldberg, you know, who produces a documentary almost more than a decade ago about Moms Mabley that really introduced her to a whole new generation of, of folks who didn't know she existed prior mm -hmm. to the emergence of all of these popular Black women comedians, stand-up comedians that we know now. There you go. Some of the shout outs coming in um, in writing from our listeners and text messages. Listener writes Michael Che is constantly pushing the envelope of racism awareness with his jokes on Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. Someone else writes Flip Wilson's Geraldine. 
advanced LGBTQ rights in the African-American community. Uh, someone else, so many, Chris Rock, Alonzo Bolden, um, Alzo Slade, a uh, couple here citing Wanda Sykes. And let's take a phone call from Carla in Essex County in Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Carla. Hi, can you hear me? We gotcha. Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to Monique. Monique's a comedian. If we can talk yeah. about that a little bit. She's wonderful. She's funny. She deserves all the praise. Carla, thank you very much. Let me go right on to another caller. Sean in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Sean. Hi, I just wanted to shout out Paul Mooney. Um, he came out with the line, Black Never Cracks, and that always stuck with me. Um, he's just funny. He passed away maybe two years ago. He was always mm-hmm. featured on um, Dave Chappelle's show, and I don't know if you guys could talk a little bit about him. Sean, thank you very much. Yeah, and we have a few texts coming in also mentioning Dave Chappelle. Professor? So I'll start with the SNL piece and Michael Che, uh, because, you know, SNL became a space for more of the contemporary black comedian to show their wares. And if we can go directly back to, you know, Richard Pryor's first appearance in SNL in 1975 and the job interview that he does with Chevy Chase, you know, with these trigger words. Right. And it was such an incredible moment, one, because it freely represented a, a moment where a black comedian could speak freely back to whiteness in a certain kind of way. But it's also this kind of critical moment, um, even as we think about folks like um you know, Eddie Murphy coming along a generation after that, you know, to this day, when I want to talk about white privilege um, in American culture, um, I show that clip of Eddie Murphy in white space, mm. um, showing to the world in 1984 on SNL when he was guest hosting what white privilege looked like, right? And Paul Mooney, who is personally my favorite comedian, um, you know, he for many years was a writer for Richard Pryor. When Richard Pryor goes from SNL and he has that short run, literally three or four episodes of that it's Richard Pryor show um, because it pushed the envelope so much. Um, you know, Paul Mooney was really the person who was, you know, crafting and helping to sweeten some of the jokes that Richard Pryor was doing, you know, in all mm-hmm. those years. And, and one of the callers or writers mentioned Flip Wilson. Um, and, and in the context of Flip Wilson, I also want to shout out Red Fox. You know, Red Fox, who, again, is coming through the Chitlin circuit. Um, he was a friend and comrade of Malcolm X. When Malcolm X was still Detroit Red. They both had red hair. Um, so one was Detroit Red and, and Red Fox was Chicago Red. Um, But he was someone that when he got the opportunity, he always chose to put people on. So it's actually him sitting on one of these late night talk shows and the host asked him, you know, who's the comedian that everybody should listen to? And he was the one that said, you need to listen to Flip Wilson, right? Uh Flip Wilson's appears on the show in 65. And of course, five years later, you know, he is hosting his own popular you know, show. And the night before Red Fox's Sanford and Son premieres, you know, it's Flip Wilson giving back the favor and bringing Red Fox onto the show, you know, prior to the, you know, the the emergence of what becomes Sanford and Son, which itself becomes an incredible comedic hit in the 1970s. And one more clip before we run out of time. Here is Richard Pryor, who I will acknowledge so many listeners uh, are bringing up as somebody to put at the top of the list. Um, his influence on comedy definitely persists almost 20 years after his death. This is from the 1982 special, Live on the Sunset Strip. You know, because we never was no n****s. That's a word that's used to describe our own wretchedness. 
And we perpetuate it now because it's dead. That word's dead. We men and women, we come from, we come from the first people on the earth. The first people on the earth were black people. Because anthropologists, white anthropologists, so the white people go, that could be true, you know. Yeah, Dr. Leakey and them found people remains five million years ago in Africa. You know them didn't speak French. So black people, we the first people had thought, right? We the first one to say, where the am I? And how do you get to Detroit? Richard Pryor, who speaks for himself. I do actually have one additional clip. I'll throw it in here. 30 seconds of Wanda Sykes. You know, my agent would call me and she's like, uh, Wanda, you don't even want to hear this. I was like, no, tell me, what is it? She's like, all right. They want you to play a maid. And you win the lottery. But you love working for this family so much. You continue to be their maid. I said, set it up. I want to meet these people. So, Professor Neal, we've got 40 seconds left in the segment. Does it work? Does comedy like the clips we've been hearing advance the cause of racial justice? I think we find people's humanity very often through humor. And and I think to the extent that some comedians are still invested in working across the color line, if you will, um, I think there is still a way to make humor of the ridiculousness of racism and, and, and the way that race functions in our society, right? I think it's, it's not as groundbreaking in, in 2024 as it would have been in 1964 when it was Dick Gregory, but I do think it's still an effective tool, whether it's through stand-up comedy, comedic actor, comedic, comedic films. I mean, there's still a kind of way to get at the humor of the situation of race in this country. Mark Anthony Neal is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. Thanks so much for joining us for this Black History Month segment. That was really great. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC, where there's always a conversation 24-7.